0: Well, there's another interesting issue about extra dimensions, and it comes from the idea of string theory. You know, string theory is a theory that tries to unite gravity and quantum theory. At the very highest energies, you get extremely strong gravitational forces on small objects, and therefore the quantum world then enters into, into gravitation, and you have the combination of gravity. Theory. The interesting thing about string theory is that all viable theories seem to have extra-spatial dimensions. Most theories have six extra dimensions, which is, of course, extremely interesting because you say, look, at, we only have three dimensions, we only observe three, so where are the other six? They are rolled up into extremely small regions of the order of 10 to the minus 32 centimeters, which is incredibly small. You know, it's 15 orders of magnitude smaller than the upper limit of the size of the cork, which is quite small in itself. These things are rolled up. But there have been some formulations and some ideas which said, well, maybe some of these dimensions actually extend out further into space, and it turns out that if some of these dimensions extended out to about 10 to the minus 18 centimeters or so, the LHC would be able to see the effects of these extra dimensions, and that would be an extremely interesting result to think that actually there, are, we have seen the effects of extra dimensions in our physics. Hey, will you guys excuse
1: me for a second? My lips are really chapped. Yeah, man. I need to get some chapstick. You do what you need to do. (laughs) (laughs) Lubricate these. There you go.
2: You're listening to Canary Cry Radio. Now here are your hosts, Basil and Gons.
1: Hey everyone, welcome again to Canary Cry Radio. My name is Basil.
2: And I'm Gons.
3: And, you know, CERN has been trying to figure out this whole extra dimension thing, right? Uh-huh. And they've been trying to, like, break through and find the god particle and create black holes and all they're sorts amb- of stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah, they're pretty ambitious over there.
3: Yeah, so um, I thought I'd bring that up because we have a very special guest. He was our guest on episode six, I believe. Woo.
1: That was a long time so, ago.
3: Yeah, that was a long time ago. But um, he's a friend, and uh, he needs to be on here more often. So we uh, we bugged him, and he finally agreed much to, uh, uh, I'm gonna have to edit this. Oh
1: yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Huh? Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
3: Much cool. to his dis- dis- dismay. Okay. So, uh, he's, um, <laughs> he has an MA from Hebrew University of Jerusalem where he studied the Hebrew Bible. Uh, he's written several books, including discovering the language of Jesus, the first six days, uh, corrupting the image. And he's currently working on. Uh, another book, which is going to be a fiction, and we'll probably get into some of that. But it's Doug Hamp of DouglasHamp How you doing, Doug? Thanks for coming on.
4: Hey, it's great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me.
3: Well, good okay. to have you. There might be yeah. a reason now- why I brought up CERN. Okay, because I, I know we've had conversations about like uh, you know the veil between heaven and earth, and I wanted to tackle that. But Basil, you wanted to chime in on something?
1: Oh, I was just gonna say. I was just gonna let everybody know that I have no idea what we're going to talk about. I genuinely am out of the loop right now. And so I'm just going to be I'm going to be right along with you guys. We're just going to figure it out as
4: we go.
3: Yeah, I had to I had to wake up Basil from his slumber to uh yeah. make it here. So
4: Well, you know, I think CERN is actually something that that may have quite a bit of relevance. Uh, You know, many of us have uh, speculated could CERN be some kind of a stargate that's going to open up a portal between, you know, this domain and the other. Uh, You know, who knows, right? We'll we'll have to wait and see on that. But Mm -hmm. scripture does have a lot to say about there being a veil between heaven and earth. So in other words, you know, a doorway is necessary to be able to pass between the two. Uh, at least in the case of fallen angels, so far as I can tell, uh, good angels may not need the door, but then again, they might as well. You know, I mean, let's let's think about when Jacob was fleeing from his brother. He goes and takes a, a slumber there at uh, Beit El, and he has this dream, and he sees these angels ascending and descending on some kind of a staircase, right? right? And that becomes known as Jacob's ladder. Right. Well. You know, I mean, was that a portal? Maybe it, it it could be, but we we see in many places in Scripture where, for example, Ezekiel he's sitting by the the river Hebar in Babylon, and it says that he saw the heavens open. Stephen, when he was being stoned, he saw the heavens open, and I don't mean stoned in like the California style. Cause, you know, <laughs> you might see a lot of things open. You know. <laughs> No, he, he was being killed, all right? And uh, he saw the heavens open, and there he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the, of the majesty on high. Um, John saw the heavens open in his uh, revelation, right, the revelation of Jesus Christ. When, right. when Jesus was being baptized, it says that the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. Uh, when Elisha and his servant woke up in the morning, they're surrounded by the Syrians, His servant is all stressed. Elisha just says, Lord, I pray you'd open his eyes. And the young man can finally see the horses and chariots of fire that are all around them. And, you know, so Elisha's not worried one bit because he can already see. It's like he already had the special decoder glasses on. You know, like you, you you get a box of cereal or Cracker Jacks or whatever they're you know, eating nowadays, I don't know, and you get out the decoder glasses and you look at the back of the box and it's got like, you know, kind of red and white or something. You put on the glasses and suddenly you can see the hidden image, all right? And and I think that's really what's going on is that there is a parallel universe or a parallel domain dimension that is right here. It's not far, far away. It's just right here. And if we had the, the glasses to see it, we'd be able to, to see through that. But in the meantime, uh, it, it, the veil between the two, it's like a membrane. It remains, and it's actually a protective measure between us and that domain. Now, you might say, well, it's to protect us from the angels. Well, maybe. Protect us from the demons, Possibly. Uh, you know I think that's part of it, but I think there's somebody who's far more dangerous that we're actually being protected from and that person is of course God himself and I'm, I'm getting these passages uh, from the Bible just to let you know I've not been uh, getting stoned over here uh, <laughs> I, I'm getting this stuff from the Bible and I, I want to sh- you know show our listeners some of these incredible passages that talk about this veil that's going to pass away. For example, Revelation 6.14 says, the sky vanished like a scroll being rolled up. All right, so, (laughs) you know, that's a pretty incredible passage. You've got the same thing in the book of Isaiah, chapter 34, verse 4, where it says that the... uh, it says, "All the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll." All right, so the heavens here are the same heavens that that Stephen saw open, uh, that Eli, uh, Ezekiel saw opened up, uh, and others. So when they saw the heavens open, it basically that veil just opened a little bit. And they got to see a tiny little crack in there to see beyond. Well, a right. day is coming when the whole thing is going to come down. And that is why Isaiah in chapter, um, uh, hold on, I'm trying to, uh, 64, there we go, Isaiah 64, he says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. I mean, this is going to be incredible. When the Lord comes back, Second Peter 3.10 says, But the, the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away and with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Psalm 97 says that the mountains are going to melt like wax at the coming of the Lord. I mean, the the, the passages go on and on and on. And then we have in Isaiah 25, verse 7, there it says, He will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people, and the veil that is spread over all nations. He'll swallow up death forever, etc., so this, this veil that's between heaven and earth is, is a major thing, okay, and it's actually protecting us from God himself. How do I know that? Well, because the Bible told me so. That's how I know it.
1: And you mean uh, that, of course, in the s- same sense that uh, just physically being in the presence of God is so overwhelming to us that uh, uh, it, we need that protection, not necessarily from any ill um, intentions,
4: well, it's not that he has ill intentions, but imagine yourself walking into a nuclear furnace, right? right? That's why you have that protective shield on the outside of the nuclear furnace, right? And then you have an, you have a, a double layer outside of that, you know, the, the containment, uh, right. just in case something goes wrong. But then, around that nuclear furnace, you have you know the blast doors, or whatever they're called, and that's keeping that. Nuclear power contained in there. Well, God is fire. Okay, this is the thing that, unfortunately, somehow in our Augustinian worldview, we have been we we've kind of neutered the we we've neutered the power of God, and we said, well, he's just kind of this this spirit kind of being. You know, he's sort of a you know a nebulous. Uh, vaporous kind of thing, you know, but look, I mean, God keeps telling us again and again. He's like, look, it, uh, I'm fire. Uh, I'm a consuming fire. What, what, what? He's like, what, how <laughs> can I say this? I really mean it. Right. I mean, fire, okay? So <laughs> Isaiah 66:15 says, for behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. All right. Uh, Paul puts it this way in Second Thessalonians one eight. It says, "When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ." I don't think he's. I don't think he's joking around here. This isn't allegorical language. This is literal. It's not figurative. God has fire coming out of him. We see that in Ezekiel chapter 1, that from his waist up and from his waist down, there is fire mingled with this word chashmal, which means electricity. We see it that it's, it's lightning. He's got lightning coming out from his presence. We see that in Revelation chapter 4. I mean, and also in chapter 5. It's all over the place. But somehow we've said, well, it doesn't really mean that. It just means that God's kind of powerful or something like that. No, he's got, like, sparks flying out of him. Uh, I love Psalm 18. It says that uh, he's got uh, smoke coming out of his nostrils, okay? I mean, he's angry. (laughs) He's angry at the sinners, you know? Imagine him staring down the Antichrist. He's like, oh, man, I am ticked at you. You are trying to kill my people. (laughs) You're trying to kill my children, You know, imagine if somebody tries to kill your kids. How are you going to feel about it? You're going to be really, really, really upset. And now imagine you have all the power in the universe. How are you going to feel? And what are you going to do? Yeah, you're going to be steaming all right. So, you know, this is what's going to happen. And when that veil between heaven and earth comes down, what is the response going to be? They're going to be like, oh, boy. We're in super big trouble. In fact, I can read for you what the response is going to be. I don't have to try to guess that. I can tell you exactly what they're going to say. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, on us and hide us from the wrath of him. Uh, from the from the, hi, fight is from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? You see, that's going to be the response is it's, they know that it's now lights out for them because there's no more pretending that there's no God. There's no more pretending that evolution did all this stuff. When that veil comes down, you know, it's kind of like uh, somebody standing on, on center stage, there's a curtain And everybody's behind, you know, out in the audience saying, oh, there's nobody on stage, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then suddenly the curtain goes up and he goes, ta-da. And, (laughs) you know, that is essentially, think about it, the book of Revelation. Right. Revelation, the unveiling, the word apocalypsis in the Greek means to remove the veil. Yeah. Right. So this is the unveiling of Jesus. That's really at the heart of this whole thing is it's his unveiling ceremony. And when when that veil comes down, the world no, is no longer going to pretend that he doesn't exist because it's going to be so incredibly obvious. And you can, you know, still stick your head in the sand, but his fire is coming for you. And that's why it's so imperative that you have that new body, that you have a body that's compatible with his so that when that fire does come, you're like, "This is cool," you know. I'm going to be all right because I have a new body. Those that don't have a new body, it's going to be toast. Yeah, it's-
3: that's a uh, that's an I think an important point to you know sit on is and try to soak in is because, you know, oftentimes you you hear about like, well, you know, he's a consuming fire, this and that, and and hell is like this place of eternal torment and fire and all this stuff, and aren't there passages that even talk about? how when we go to that, I think the, I can't remember which judgment it was, it's not right in front of me, but you know, all the things that weren't good that we did, you know, they're going to be burned up, right? Like this That first is,
4: uh, Corinthians three uh, verse 12. There you go. Yeah. yeah. So,
3: so it's, it's this idea that, you know, once we're saved, we are protected and we, once we are given our new bodies, uh, it's to withstand this amazing fire that comes out of God and we can actually be with him. Um, And I I think, you know, you, you've really pointed that out to me and that's been really cool. But let me ask you this because, uh, you know, there's, there's theories about how there's a first heaven, a second heaven and a third heaven. Uh, How does that play into the veil? You said the veil is just protecting us from God is, is there, you know, is, are there, are there levels, you know, is it just one membrane? Is it, you know, uh, what can you tell us that, that might coincide with this idea of a first, second and third heaven?
4: I think the clue is this. In Revelation, it's uh, Jesus says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Uh, we have that in 312. Uh, Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. and He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. Uh, then we begin to see it uh, get a little more exciting. 1119, then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple and there were lightnings noises thunderings and earthquake and great hail and then 15 verse 8 the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of god and from his power and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed and then lastly uh, sixteen, one. 1 then i heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, "Go and pour out the bowls for the wrath of God on the earth," uh, etc. So, essentially, there is a temple of God in heaven. Isaiah got to go into that temple, and he got to see God. Now, it was a virtual reality kind of experience. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't a hundred and five percent there somehow. Uh, you know, it was by means of a vision, but nevertheless. Uh, he got to go in there, and he got to he got to go inside the nuclear furnace, if you will, where God has basically uh, positioned Himself. He's holed Himself up uh, in inside this temple in heaven, and when that thing opens up, there's lightning and thundering, right, and you know all this uh, stuff that's going to start happening, hail and a, a great earthquake, because god has basically put himself in a box to protect kind of everybody that isn't really uh able to to take his his power Uh, that certainly you know is true of 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 humans but i think it's also true maybe of the fallen angels Uh, you know that's a little bit of speculation but i would suspect that they can't handle it either and yet god has put himself in this temple of God in heaven. Remember when, when uh, it says in Hebrews that Moses was instructed to carefully follow the pattern given to him because it was a copy of right. the things that were in heaven. Yes, Right? Yeah. So you, know, you go to the book of Isaiah chapter 6 and we see that there's an altar there. Uh, you know, it's like, no, wait a second, there's an altar. And then we're even told that Jesus went into the temple made without hands. That is the heavenly one. And he made, he reconciled all things in heaven and on earth. You're like, no, wait a second. You know, what's going on here? I mean, I kind of get the whole earthly part of that, but in heaven, well, again, uh, being, you know, God being who He is, this, all this fire and all this different stuff, He has put Himself away. Uh, now, obviously, there was a a legal uh, a legal uh, fulfillment that was that was done at the the death and, and resurrection of Jesus, but I would argue that there is something kind of uh, metaphysical, if we can use that word, that ha- that is happening and, and is going to happen as well. And it's basically when God takes, when he retakes possession of the earth. Because the earth itself, though it belongs to God, it will always be God's, yet he gave full rights and benefits to Adam and Eve. Well, we know what happened there. They messed up. Those benefits were forfeited. And basically, you had a squatter come along. You know, in other words, Satan. He comes along and says, oh. Uh, Adam and Eve. I see that you guys are <laughs> dying. <laughs> okay, so you know God gave the planet to you. You can't take control of it. So I will. You know, uh, squatters' rights here. So Satan basically takes over because of Adam's foolishness, and, and basic. You know, in a sense, he has some legal, some some legal rights to the planet. Well, he he maintains those legal rights until Jesus comes along. And then Jesus says, the ruler of this world is now judged, all right? And it was at the cross where he lost his legal right to the earth, but instead of getting kicked out right away, uh, God basically said, okay, you've got two days to get out, and on the third day, the marshal's coming back, and he will evict you with, you know, due force, so watch out, all right? And... That's the time when God is going to retake possession of his property that has always been his, you know, but he's had to go through this legal battle to get out this unwanted tenant. And, um, you know, we, we know that story. So the veil comes down. Jesus comes back in fiery flames uh, and this, you know, destroying all who are, are against him. And then the earth begins to melt, right? The earth is incompatible. Remember when God came down on Mount Sinai, we, we read there that the the mountain was smoking. It was on fire because right. of his glory. You know, and sometimes we talk about God's glory, and we get sort of la-di-da about it. You know, we, we sort of get this <laughs> theological numbness of mind and say, oh, that's, I don't know. I don't know what glory is, but it's, it's nothing— you know, yeah, it's nothing that you can really understand. Yes, it is. It's like fire and light. Okay, that's what his glory is. He, he's got this incredible, you know, brilliance coming out of him, and the glory of the Lord when it when it shines upon you. Well, that's because it shines. It's light. It's the light that comes out of God, and so the God's glory was was hitting that mountain. The mountain could not handle it because it is in a state of degeneration. It's in a state of incompatibility with God. We know that from Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, starting at verse 19, it says, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. All right, so the creation is longing to be liberated from this corruption, the bondage of corruption. And it, it's really amazing. Uh, Dr. Robert Jenry did some quite amazing research where he discovered that uh, a little uh, isotope known as polonium um is in a state of uh, degeneration and this is discovered in um, granite and essentially granite lost an alpha particle way back when and so now granite is slowly decomposing. It's uh, very slightly radioactive because it's decomposing. So bottom line, you know, the, the rocks are falling apart. They are literally falling apart. So those uh,
3: expensive kitchen counters that we see out here that are made out of granite,
1: right? Yeah, well, those have a special shellac on them
4: that uh, keep them durable and keep the radiation out of your food. <laughs> right? <laughs> no, actually, they've come up with the they've come up with a different kind of material that looks like granite but isn't radioactive. So, oh, thank God, that's kind of interesting. But you know, I suppose you could just kind of slow cook your food if you leave it on the. the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, you know, I mean, so the bottom line here is that the very earth itself, the dirt, the rocks, are in a state of degeneration. All right? right. Now, when God first made it, it wasn't like that because everything was good. Right. You know, God could walk on the planet and there was no issue. But then later, God, you know, comes to the planet and, you know, it, it, it just doesn't work that way. There's a, there's a number, of, there's an, an another amazing passage which is in uh, Numbers chapter 11. And this was amazing. Here, uh, God is, is in the midst of the camp of Israel, and the people are complaining all the time, right? So it says, verse 1, Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. All right? So, <laughs> right. You know, it's like, you know, God's in your midst. You know, you know. think again, think of like a nuclear furnace and you're just kind of, someone's at the controls just, you know, turning them every which way. Like, this thing doesn't work, you know, and then suddenly somebody gets blasted with fire right, and they're just <laughs> gone. They just turn to ash, right? You're like, whoa, right. where'd the guy go? Um, you know, you, you think of uh, Nadav and Abihu, uh, Aaron's sons who go into Minister to the Lord, and they got this strange fire, and the fire of the Lord breaks out and consumes them, right? Right. This is what we're talking about. He really means it. He's like, seriously, I, I'm fire. I don't know what else to tell you about that, but I really mean it. <laughs> you, know? and, you guys don't get it. I'm yeah. actually be careful. Yeah. Oh, Christ. <laughs> you know, because I think what happens is we have this this image of God that. Well, he's kind of too good for us. You know, he's a bit snobbish. And that's why for all those years, he made these priests do all these silly rituals that had no real purpose other than to keep them busy. You know, I think that's sort of the modern-day Christian mentality of what the whole thing of the temple was about.
1: Right, yeah, it does seem sort of like the attitude is that, oh, that 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 was so silly those J- jews did such silly things now we don't need to do that but yeah. uh what she, what I hear you saying is that you know they were actually being smart following directions
4: well yeah i mean think of it if you are a nuclear technician you're going to have incredible respect for the power of that nuclear furnace right because you know what it can do to you so you're gonna you're gonna wear your Geiger counter around. You're gonna put on your special shoeies or whatever you're supposed to do. You know you're gonna. I believe, uh, I believe, booties is the booties. Correct term. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate that. I must have gotten shoeies from my four-year-old. <laughs> it all starts to blur together after a while. <laughs> um, yeah, booties. There we go. So you know you 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 wear those. You know whatever you need to do to protect yourself. Right. From this incredible amount of power, you're going to do that, or, or think of it like a a clean room. If you go and work at uh, Hewlett Packard or you work at you know some place where they make microchips and stuff, Intel, right. I mean that place is spotless, right? Yeah. And it's not because you know they're too good for you; it's because it has to remain pure. Right. Otherwise, contamination will set in, and then things won't work right. Well, in the case of the the priests, I suggest we stop calling them priests and we call them technicians. All right. You know, they are going in, they're doing a very important job for us, just like the nuclear technician is doing a great job for me. I love getting the electricity. Uh, you know, so I want him to take good care of himself. He needs to right. he needs to suit up when he goes in. So in the same way, the priests were doing this this kind of technician kind of work. Uh, day in and day out. And then once a year, they had to go and service this nuclear furnace, right? And they would take the uh, the sacrifice known as Yom, uh, this is on the day of Yom Kippur. Now, the word Kippur right. just means a covering. See, again, I think we have theo- we have theologized ourselves to death. And so now we have these terms that we don't really know what they mean. Right. You know, the word atonement. Uh, Ask a theologian, what does atonement mean? Well, you'll hear some pastors say, it means at one minute. And, oh, I hate that sermon. At (laughs) one minute, you know. It means that now we're at one with God. And I'm like, oh, man, you could not even (laughs) preach that in a different language. Only in English can you preach that (laughs) sermon. It just doesn't work, you know. (laughs) That's good. You know. It's, it's just so ridiculous. So you have that, or you have, you know, sort of the smarter class that say, well, it means propitiation. Oh, what does that mean? Okay. I mean, we've gotten so far out of touch with what these terms really mean. The word kippur comes from the word kapara, and it just means a covering. That's it. Plain and simple. Covering. Right. And the, the animal is called the korban. All right. We have that in the New Testament as well. Korban. A korban, uh, the word actually means to come near, to come near. And I remember the first time I saw that, I'm like, what? A sacrifice is called to come near? I just don't get it, you know? So after years of kind of pondering on that, I'm like, oh, oh, I get it. Yeah, it's not that hard to understand. It's the thing, the object that you need to come near to God. And then you will, you'll basically give the life essence of that animal as a covering for, you know, all of your misconduct. And now, why? Why do you want to come near? You know why? Because God wants to hang out with you. That's really it. God wants to hang out with you. And he's like, listen, uh, you know, Israelites, you're a bit stiff-necked, it's true, but still, I like you. you You know? You're my kids. I want to hang out with you. So... Here's what we got to do. Look, I have a long-term solution called Jesus, but that's a ways down the road. In the meantime, I still want to hang out with you. I still want to be part of your life. I want to bless you. Here's what you got to do. And he introduces this whole um, institution of, uh, of the temple. So it's incredibly important because God wants to be near us. He wants us to come near him, and he wants us to have a covering. And so let's get rid of the word atonement, let's get rid of the word propitiation. I recommend that we completely replace that with force field. It's a force field. <laughs> yes. You know, think Star Trek. It all Trekkie on me. It's a force field, right? I remember one of the Star Trek's where they were getting really close to the sun and they had to put up all their shields to protect themselves from the sun. And that's essentially what, what's happening here. Is God is like, look at you need some kind of a shield, a force field so that my fire doesn't toast you, and this is the the life of this animal is going to be a, a protection for you. The life force fluid, all right. Uh, you know, I've been you know searching for non-theological terms to describe what all this stuff is. So that you can just understand it in layman's terms, in sort of 21st century, you know, uh, engineering kind of terms. Right. Because I think, you know, I think we should be much more engineers than we should be theologians. Because uh, the theologian says, well, God just does it because God just does things, you know, and, <laughs> and there's not necessarily a rhyme or reason to it. Right. And yet... God's, he's not like that. He, he's not just going to create busy work for you. You know, I mean, that's what bureaucrats do. God is not a bureaucrat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, here's uh, 50 forms you have to fill out front and back and please photocopy those just because, you know, God doesn't do that. Right. He, you know. No, and I think that's a great point. And I
1: think that's something that we actually do try to, I don't think we've ever put it so eloquently, but I think that's definitely something that we try to uh, um, get across on the show is that, um, you know, there's there's a point to all this business and there's ways to explain it um, without getting into uh, a lot of, you know, theological, technical jargon, Um and, you know, being able to avoid that. And I, I, I love that, uh, the, the technicians thing that just sounds, um, I don't know. Perfect for our show. I, I just <laughs> <You> sounds <know. laughs> so cool when I think of myself as that. So
3: do so you think Doug, when we, you know, in the old Testament, when we were burning, you know, our offerings and, uh, you know, there are times when it, uh, it seems like it's describing literally a fire come down from heaven to consume the offering other times Uh, it's part of the ritual, right? To burn, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever, whatever it may be, the, you know, the sacrifice. Now, do you think that was done, not just symbolically, but perhaps, you know, maybe, you know, God smelling the aroma of the, 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 the sacrifice, maybe there's something to that literal fire, that sort of, um, I don't know. I I don't, I'm not sure exactly where I'm going, but what's the, uh, what, what's the possible significance there of actually burning the offering, in light of the stuff that you've been uh, telling us here?
4: Well, yeah, you have a, uh, you know, in the case of a, a sin offering, um, you know, every so often you would completely burn it up. I mean, it would just, nothing would be left. Okay. I mean, the blood, of course the blood would be taken of that animal and then it would be poured out on behalf of the worshipers. Uh, in some case it was the nations, right? But, um, and then, and then whatever was left was just, it was a, a sweet-smelling sacrifice to the Lord. Right. So the Lord is looking at this animal, it was never symbolic, never, never, ever, ever was it ever symbolic. It was always efficacious. It had a real purpose. And why, I think the reason that it smelled so nice is because God's like, wow, I get to have one more year of fellowship with my people. That excites me. I'm so excited. You know, I think we've made God into this tyrant. And, you know, he's like this lousy boss that just keeps you busy with stuff. You're like, why am I doing this? I have no idea, but the boss said I have to do it. And God's like, no, you guys, I want to hang out with you. Don't you get it? I want to hang out with you. And in the case of, of Yom Kippur, when that blood was poured out on behalf of the nation, then... Now there, the clock was reset. Now you've got one more year, right? And every year it had to be repeated because the shelf life, the efficacious, um, the or the the efficacy of that animal of that sacrifice had a one year shelf life, and then it had to be repeated. And so this is really God's like, good. I get to I get to hang out with the, these guys again, and I think because. We have come, many people have come to the Old Testament with this thing like, well, nobody could understand this book until the New Testament came along, which I don't think is true. I think, you know, I think the New Testament offered some insights, you know, clearly, but it's not like you couldn't understand anything before the New Testament. But, you know, fair enough. I mean, you know, it it certainly is a little bit more crystal clear now. Um But still, you know, when you, when you start with a replacement theology idea, then all those sacrifices for 1,400 years, really since the time of Adam and Eve, you've got sacrifices going on. And what do the theologians tell us? Well, those were just, those were, um, uh, you know, they were looking forward to Christ, okay? They didn't have any real purpose other than to foreshadow the coming of the Messiah, and I'm like, really? That's weird. You know, I mean, that's a that's a lot of animals that need to be killed just to create some kind of a picture, so that we can say, oh, that was talking about Jesus. I just right. don't buy it. I don't buy it one second because most people, you know, they're they're doing this. And they're like, uh, I don't know. I just I know I'm supposed to do this. Uh, Messiah, maybe. I don't know. Could right. be. But you know, the average guy in the street wasn't. And it wasn't like just burning with thoughts of Messiah's coming, you know? Right. But a- a- as, it, as it became more and more revealed, then yeah, you start to put the pieces together. You know, We can look at this whole thing with the text in front of us on our computers and iPhones and whatever, and we're like, oh yeah, I can see it. It's easy. But I don't think as you're going through it that it was so blatantly obvious it's talking about Jesus. And you know, the other thing is, if the Old Testament Hebrew scripture sacrifices were only a picture of what was to come and they had no real efficacy in and of themselves. Then when you come to the millennium and you start talking about the sacrifices again, then you have just the opposite. Say, well, these are just memorial sacrifices. And they're just to remind us of all that Jesus did. All right. But then you're like, no, wait a second. There are going to be two sacrifices a day all right. So in one year, the year is going to be 360 days again. So that's going to be 720 animals killed in just one year. Multiply that by a thousand years. <laughs> all right, and we've got a lot of dead animals just to remind us of what Jesus did. Hmm. Right. Uh, you know, really. I, again. So what I'm, what I see is that. These sacrifices are very efficacious, they're not figurative, they're not symbolic, but they are for the people who are mortal on the planet during that time. Why? Because now the veil has been taken away, God himself in his fiery power is dwelling on the earth, and if you're immortal, you need some kind of protective barrier to... To help you, and now the Jews are going to be the priests, not of their own country; they're going to be the priests of the world, and so they are going to be offering these sacrifices on behalf of all the people that are very much in need of a force field during that time.
3: Let me ask you this, Doug: What what do you think the uh, the end times when basically they the they will be uh sacrificing again right once the temple is rebuilt what's going to be the logic behind that is that just going to be to you know revamp the jewish history or what's what's going to be the reasoning behind doing the sacrifices again because that's going to be something that sort of unites israel right but at the same time it's when the antichrist is going to be around so uh what are your thoughts on that
4: oh you mean during the tribulation is that right okay yeah Okay. Um, Well, during the tribulation, that's really interesting because, you know, here you have the Antichrist. He's so intent on going into the temple and declaring, declaring himself to be God. And I kept pondering this for the longest time. I'm like, what's the big deal? Why not just get on with slaughtering the rest of humanity and forget this whole, you know, I am God thing? in jerusalem on the temple mount until i started thinking well okay wait a second uh what's so special about that piece of real estate and i think the big clue comes for us in galatians chapter four where paul says that the two jerusalem's are you know you have this allegory incidentally that is used one time in scripture allegory and uh it's there in galatians chapter four but he talks about the free woman versus the, um, the servant woman or the one that's, that's in bondage. And he says, um, starting in verse 22, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Okay, so you've got this, this contrast of these two sons. One is free, one is not. And he says, which things are symbolic, for these two are the covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. All right. So, you know, and and this is where a lot of people start to poo-poo the law. Say, well, you see, if you're under the law, then you're, you're under bondage. It's not talking about the Mosaic Law. It's talking about if you are a human right now, and you are under, you're under bondage, all right, because you've been born under this this uh, system. In this system, uh, where corruption is rampant, it's everywhere, all right. And and here's the big clue: the Jerusalem, which now is that is the lower Jerusalem, versus. The Jerusalem above is free, all right? So the Jerusalem above is the new Jerusalem, and then there's the lower Jerusalem. Well, guess where the lower, the upper Jerusalem is located? It's right above the lower Jerusalem. I mean, they're like, you know, I don't know, <laughs> a stone's throw away probably, uh, but it's a dimensional shift. It's not a spatial uh, differentiation. It's it's a dimensional differentiation, and You know, I think if we could put on our secret decoder glasses, we'd be like, whoa, there's the new Jerusalem right there. Uh, it's, It's right just hovering over the lower Jerusalem. So what I perceive that the Antichrist is up to is that he's basically trying, he's on a vendetta to vindicate his father, Satan, who got booted off the holy city, the new Jerusalem, back in the day. We we see that in Ezekiel twenty eight where it says that uh, you were in Eden the Garden of God and it says that you were on the holy mountain of God. Well, the holy mountain of God, according to Hebrews twelve twenty two, it says, but you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the new, or to the heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, we see in Psalm forty eight, uh, beautiful in elevation, is Mount uh, Mount Zion. Um, it, it says. Um, Uh, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion, the sides of the north, the city of the great king. All right. And it says also uh, God's in his holy mountain. Okay. So here this mountain is the new Jerusalem. It's just hovering over the lower Jerusalem. And I think what basically it, there's a massive portal. That's like the portal of all portals. Okay. And if you can go into, not I, don't, I and again I don't think the the structure of the temple is important whatsoever I think it's the geography you know it's right. it's on that particular place right. and it has to be with Jews watching sanctioning sanctioning this whole proceeding right because you know if you think about it Satan has had a long time to do what as he wished on top of the temple mount right i mean After the Jews got booted out in 70, there was a second Jewish revolt in 132 to 135. After that, Hadrian uh, kicked all the Jews out and said, don't you ever come back. And then they built a temple to Zeus on top of, uh, or, you know, to Jupiter on top of the Temple Mount. And that went on for about 150 years, roughly to about 300 something. And then they used it as a trash heap. And then along come the Muslims, and of course we know what the Muslims did. They, you know, they built the uh, the Dome of the Rock up there, and the um, um, the Mosque of uh, of uh, Omar is up there as well. So, you know, he's had plenty of time to, to stand on that spot and say, "I'm God," you know. But right, and of course he lacked the technology to do that. But still. Uh, I, I think that's why we've seen that particular place, that real estate, go through some pretty interesting changes. Because Satan hates that place, but if he can go, if he can go and say, "Hey, I am God," and he can actually kind of prove it in a sense, right. and the Jews are the Jews are countenancing his actions, he's basically sticking his hand up through the veil and giving God the finger. I think that's really what's going on there. Uh, interesting. Wow. All right. So
1: now uh, I would like to go back and talk about this technician thing that we were talking about earlier. Now we've talked about, uh, you know, being a technician in the uh, Old Testament, being a technician in the uh, post-apocalyptic millennial reign. And now kind of what does that mean to us? Uh, you know, in modern times here. I mean, we all, we all know the kind of the basics of, you know, uh, modern Christianity and uh, what Jesus did for us. But um, how do you think that compares when talking, using the language of technician re?
4: Well, the, the technician was making a way for there to be a personal force field over each individual, Right. Uh, why, why do you need a force field? You need a force field because whatever your body is, is in some way unable to withstand the power and the energy of, you know, the sun or God or whatever. Right, right. All right, so, well, imagine if, um, you know, let's go back to the, the, uh, the Star Trek, right, um, the Enterprise if the Enterprise is getting too close to the sun, uh, but the Enterprise itself is actually made of fire, there's no problem, right? Because there's a compatibility between right. the two now. So right. fire isn't going to hurt fire. But fire against steel, well, there's a real problem. So you need a, you need a force field to protect you from that. So what mm-hmm. that means is there cannot actually be a real union between the two, there can't be true intimacy and fellowship because there's always a veil, there's a, you know, a shield between the two. Right, right. Uh, it's like the boy in the bubble. You know, the boy in the bubble has to live in the bubble because if he comes out of it, he will be destroyed by all the the, the germs and etc. that are out in the real world. Right. Uh, and you know, and his his father and mother are are. L- Pressing their noses up against the plastic saying, oh, my son, we wish that we could come in there and be with you. But we can't because we would kill you if we came in there and you would die if you came out. Mm -hmm. Right. So so what are those parents desired?
3: So we're like spiritual hamsters basically
4: right now. (laughs) Yeah, basically. Yeah. You know, so the the parents are like, we want to get you out of there, but we have to get you fixed first. We got to heal you before we can give you a hug without any plastic being between us. And that's essentially what God wants. He wants to give us a big hug, but he's like, man, if I give you a hug now, you figure it out, you know? It's not going to end well. It's going to, you'll be burned to a crisp if I give you a hug. And, right. Johnny, you uh, you know, you, you brought that up there in First Corinthians, um, 1 Corinthians 3, where he talks about how we're all going to be before the Lord. He says, Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he'll receive reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire." I, I take that one hundred percent literally. That we're going to stand before the Lord. His fire is now coming raging at me. Now I've got my I've got my garment of Yeshua on. Okay, I've got a garment of salvation on, so I'm good to go. But I've got all these merit badges. Okay, and 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 some of my merit badges are in fact demerit badges. And but I I. You know, I was working on those during my life thinking, man, this one's really cool, right? <laughs> this one where people are giving me praise and they're saying, oh, you're so amazing. And I just kept stoking that, you know, and I kept sewing it on. And I'm like, oh, look at all these badges, right? And I give before for the Lord and, and they just go poof. They just burn right up. They're gone. And what is left, hopefully there is something left, will be gold, silver, precious stones. I think that it's really going to be gold, silver, and precious stones uh right. we see that satan was covered with all these precious stones uh, why can't i have precious stones on me as well you know i don't know that my uh you know my very person is covered with stones maybe it's just my outer garment i don't know but still we're gonna ha- we're gonna somehow have these precious stones and gold and silver
3: yeah that's you interesting And it's really there's a lot of information that i think people haven't really considered but uh I got another question for you um genesis three twenty four. when you know adam and eve are driven out of eden it talks about how god placed a cherubim and there was a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life mm-hmm. now it's you know talking about fire and flames and all this stuff it sort of perked my mind uh, as to what your thoughts are on that flaming sword what was it that what could it be? Is it, uh, I mean, do you think it's a literal flaming sword? And if so, what is the significance of why it was placed there and why we, obviously we lost our ability to have, you know, free access to the tree of life. What's going on there?
4: Well, you know, first of all, it's interesting. It's not just a cherubim, uh, but the cherubim is plural. And it's actually in the Hebrew, it says the cherubim. Yeah. Uh, so
3: that's what my he, translation says. The, okay. Place yeah. The cherubim, yeah.
4: Yeah, and the only place where I, I see a specific mention of cherubim is in Ezekiel chapter one, and, and the following Ezekiel passages. But and there we see four cherubim. So I, you know I'm thinking maybe he put all four around this thing, and they had one sword, and then they start passing it to each other. Okay. And and this thing is just going so fast, it's now whirling around the tree so that this this fiery flaming sword is now making this incredibly powerful uh, barrier. Force field. It's it's a force field, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) It's a force field. You got it. You got it. So, you know, at at this point, Adam and Eve become totally incompatible with this. They cannot even get near it. Uh, I don't think that the fallen angels can attempt anything either. It it seems like this thing is pretty well safeguarded. And then, of course, we see it coming back in Revelation, you know, where the leaves of the tree will be for the healing of the nations. So, you know, because it says, look, man has not become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now lest he put out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever, then God kicks him out. Right, right. You know, so that was really important that man not take that, obviously. I think if he had done that, he would have then lingered in this state of, of death, quasi-death, and he would have become essentially a fallen angel because the, the tree has the power to transform a mortal into an immortal. Yeah. And that's what we see it's going to do in the age to come because it's going to transform people from their mortal bodies into their immortal bodies. Mm-hmm. and you know if if he had taken it in that fallen state i think he would have been a, basically a fallen angel and he would have remained as such forever very, and very that's why it was really important to to close that thing off right away
3: that's fascinating because obviously you know talking about transhumanism and what are they trying to do you know they're sort of trying to find immortality in that fallen state so uh mm-hmm. that's that's, right. a, that's an interesting um interesting tie in there
1: but right um now i have a question for you given your uh professional scientific and secret knowledge of the (laughs) data going on at cern (laughs) um what are your thoughts on you know finding an actual way to sort of pierce the veil um uh, just so everyone knows CERN uh is the organization that runs the the large hadron collider and they're also the organization that facilitates some of the most um uh sophisticated scientific experiments regarding uh, the f- f- nuclear physics and things like that um i mean do you think that's a r- real thing that could happen or do you think uh, i mean cuz there's a there's some,
4: a lot of funky things happening over there. You know, it would not surprise me, and I, I often just wonder if we see in Revelation chapter 9 that the star having fallen from heaven has the key to the abyss. If that isn't, you know, not so not, it's not so much a, uh, a physical metal key, as it were, but right. it is basically a passcode. You know, and uh, the passcode is by by way of CERN or something like that. You know, and they finally crack the code, and uh, they press the button, and the door starts to open. Um, you know, so on the flip side, on the other side of the veil, it's Satan who is making that happen. But on the on the human side, you know, could it be that it's man's technology that has 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 aided? Um, you know, Satan, and of course, I would argue probably Satan's uh, occult knowledge, uh, probably unbeknownst to most people that are involved with that, is is probably helping this to to come about. You know, so right. and and again, I just want to clarify, I don't think that all the people working on CERN are a bunch of Satanists, but <laughs> right. um, but I would I would argue that that more than likely the kernel of the idea of the knowledge base was probably somewhere satanically inspired.
1: Right. Well, th- yeah. well It's like
4: Stan Dayo said he was yeah.
1: uh, working on a, some portal for some billionaire and found a satanic altar in his,
4: you know, yes. laboratory. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of that kind of stuff and just, you know, it's not so obvious to us most of the time, but yeah, I, I think it's very possible. I think, you know, um, I mean, look, when, when people have a, some kind of a seance or, uh, they do some kind of a satanic ritual. You know, they'll they'll draw a circle. They'll have the candles. They'll need blood. Okay, you know, blood is kind of the currency of that whole thing. Right. Uh, yeah. um, you know, so I think I think it's very I think it's very possible. It's very possible. You I, you know, know, it's,
3: it's it's interesting because I think you know uh, as I'm putting together uh, part two of Age of Deceit. You know, I'm really finding the parallel of alchemy. And, uh, it's just, it's modern science and alchemy is like, you know, an alchemist from 500 AD or something would be having a field day with the kind of stuff that our scientists are doing today, you know, and the philosopher's stone, you know, it's not a literal stone. It's, it's, you know, sometimes it's called the elixir of life and there's different names for it, but it seems to have something to do with blood. And it seems like there's a cult knowledge that goes back and says that to create, the philosopher's stone, uh, you need a live human. Mm. So there's blood sacrifice there. And and so I don't know, there's some very interesting parallels going on there that uh, that I'm starting to, to kind of piece together. When you were describing, when you were going through earlier of all the instances when the veil sort of opens up, right? And mm-hmm. Stephen has, you know, sees the throne. Well, Stephen was the only one seeing the throne, right? Like Mm -hmm. the people throwing the stones, they didn't see the veil open. Right. Um, However, at the end, everyone's going to see, you know, when the veil rolls down like a scroll, everyone's going to see it. It's going to, it's not going to be a, you know, there's not going to be any question about what's going on. Right. So do you think there is something going on within an individual's brain, perhaps maybe something to do with the pineal gland or something where God allows Sort of these these visions to happen in a sort of way that the veil is allowed to come down, and, and then also the you know I guess part two of the question is a lot of psychedelic drugs you know ayahuasca is a big thing that people are doing and taking you know DMT is another big drug that people take to um, and the people that do take it you know their reports are that they see into another dimension they actually see a dimension that is overlapping our reality. And they see entities and they, you know, all sorts of stuff. And so, you know, I guess my theory is that that is sort of breaching what, you know, the veil that we're not supposed to really peek into. And if you peek in in the wrong spot with the wrong means, you're you're only going to be met with uh, entities that aren't very, you know, friendly. What do you think's going on there as far as like in the example of Stephen, let's say, just use that as an example. Do you think that it's just God allowing uh, certain people to have, you know, a peek through that veil. And, and then, you know, is there a difference between just seeing it as an as a vision and then actually, for example, Moses, where it seems like a literal veil was probably opened up because, you know, he obviously came back down the mountain. They had to, you know, his face was glowing. That That's mm-hmm. not something that just happens, uh, you yeah. know, from a vision. Yeah.
4: Well, in, in the case of the prophets, you know, I mean, whether it was the, the pineal gland or whatever it was, I don't know. Uh, I, I suppose that's very possible. And, you know, your reference to using psychotropic drugs to, uh, that people have used to open up that doorway. You know, I think, I think, you know, I believe those accounts. I think people have done that and they have seen through. Uh, I suppose they're looking through a window they shouldn't look into. Whereas when God allows it to happen, whatever the, the mechanism, I don't know. But he's giving them access the right way, and I think it's like a a virtual reality experience, they're not actually there, their body's not technically there, right. uh, because if they were, just like when God says to Moses, hey, you can't see my face, nobody can see my face and live, right? right. And yeah. yet, you know, you've got Ezekiel giving us a very detailed description of what God looks like. Uh, Isaiah gives us a detailed description of what God looks like. Daniel gives us a description of what God looks like. He's, you know, he's this, this man of fire. He's got this torrent of fire coming out from him. So all these guys get a pretty close snapshot of what God is looking like. And I would say it's a virtual reality experience. It's like, uh, you know, if you could have a, you're, you're going into the nuclear furnace, but by way of virtual reality. Mm. Right, you can you can go in there. You can maybe sense some of the heat, not all of it. Uh, you you you're getting the fullness of the light, and you can hear it, and all this different stuff. Your senses are activated, but you're not getting all the power that would destroy you. Right, right. So, in the case of Moses, God, let's say physically or tangibly or whatever word you want to use, came down. Right, it was. Uh, God kind of came down. Now, he still had to cover himself, but he came down with a covering of clouds, which is so cool because it says in Psalm 97 that thick darkness surrounds the Lord. And you're like, what? How can clouds and darkness throughout surround God? That doesn't make any sense. God is light, right? But, I mean, listen to this. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A fire goes out before him and burns up his enemies round about. His lightnings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. Oh, man, this is cool stuff. So you've got this, this cloud that is surrounding the Lord. Well, we see that same thing in Exodus 19. And uh, God says to Moses, "Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe forever. All right, so they can hear, but they don't get to see because God is actually he's um, veiling himself with his cloud. How does Jesus come back? He comes back surrounded by a cloud. You know why? Because he has to give his enemies a fighting chance. <laughs> okay, if if he didn't veil himself a little bit. It'd be over. Uh, so, yeah, um, the, the prophets that have seen through the veil were given the right decoder glasses, the virtual reality experience, and they got to see it as they're supposed to see it. People right. that go and try to sneak through the back door, you know, they're seeing some stuff that's going on, but, you know, they're getting it from only one perspective. And it must be a very incredibly scary uh, kind of experience to see that. Right.
1: I'm sure. And that's actually what is reported is that it's terrifying.
3: Yeah. I mean, the, yeah. Dr. Rick Strassman had to have a, a help group, uh, afterwards because people were traumatized from their experience of DMT, of being raped and, uh, tortured and all sorts of stuff. But, uh, but, uh, this brings up a whole nother issue and a question about, You know, what are we doing when we start uh, connecting to the Internet, if you will, the ether? And uh, is this going to be some sort of breaching of some dimensional portal? You know, I mean, we've heard people like Terrence McKenna talk about, you know, he's on these drugs or whatever, and he meets these entities and stuff. And he even declared that in the future we'll... We won't have to, you know, we won't have to take drugs because we'll be able to just, you know, plug straight into the brain and we'll just be completely open and we'll encounter these race of beings that are extra dimensional or whatever. So I mean, kind of scary stuff. But uh, let me um, let me ask you this, Doug, about the book that you're working on now uh, because you're looking at the millennium, right? And um, mm-hmm. it's a fiction, so it's a different approach for you. And um, I know you've. I've been working pretty hard at it, and it's going to be a pretty extensive um, piece of work. Do you want to share a little bit about how it's going and just the whole premise behind why using fiction and and sort of just and on also
4: it? how it ends? <laughs> <laughs> I got to leave you on a cliffhanger there, uh, but uh, you uh, but you can read it yourself. It's in Revelation twenty verse eight, where it says that fire comes down and de- devours. Satan and all these that come against the uh, against the whole the the beloved city. So I mean ah, that that there. that's how it ends. But the question is, how do we get there? Okay, and um, so a lot of the things that I've been talking about are are foundational research points for my book, and I have woven those in. Like I talk about this whole thing of Satan being hungry and wanting blood. Uh, I've got a, a chapter on that, and and it's kind of this uh, almost. Um, it's sort of a humorous little, uh, I mean, it's not humorous, but I I try to make it a little bit, you know, put some levity in there and, uh, there's arguments going on between Satan and his demons and they're like, Hey, I'm hungry. What's for dinner? You know, kind of this thing. Uh, but you know, so it's theology through and through, but I don't want you to feel like it's theology. That's, that's been my goal. And, um, but all these things that i'm talking about you know the the, the sacrifices the millennial sacrifices the force field uh, these are a lot of the terms that i'm using because i want to get away from that theological jargon cuz once i you know you start doing that and people i think they start to fall asleep or right. you know the, the 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 wall goes up they're like okay i'm out of here you know cuz i this the force
3: field goes up
4: Yes, exactly. You know, but you know, most people are, you know, familiar with Star Trek or whatever, Star Wars or something. They're like, "Oh, oh, I, I get it," you know. You don't right? have to you don't have to theologize me to death. Just tell me in terms that I can get that are relevant to me today. And so I've tried to really get away from the Christianese that, you know, we all sort of live in. Because I want this to be a work where you can use this as an evangelistic tool to give to somebody. And, you know, they can read about it. It, it reads kind of like fantasy. And they're like, oh, this is kind of a cool story, you know. And right. uh, I'd like to know the God of, you know, the, the king. uh of this, I don't call him God, but, you know, the, the king of this story, uh, a whole lot better. That'd be really cool. Right. But I, I have not skimped on the theology. So, you know, if you're a Christian, I want you to read this and, and have confidence that what you're reading, though it is fictionalized a little bit, is insofar as some of the characters are concerned. But, you know, the theology is what I would consider right on. I mean, I'm, I'm doing my best. Uh, right. But, you know, I, I wanted to, to make it flow forward. I could have just, you know, given you all the bullet points and here's all the verses. But there were so many verses. I'm like, how do I incorporate this whole thing? There's so many verses that I wanted to basically use to to prove the point, and so I started weaving them together, and I eventually came up with a with a narrative of all these verses on a particular topic. And then I decided to Go through it again, and then to re- to weave it into these different characters. So I have a I have a, the main character. His name is Ben. He's a kind of a young guy in crisis. He's living at the end of the thousand years, and Satan has been released from his prison. He goes out to deceive the nations, and because he's so young, the um, the leader of his his village, whose name is Antipas. He, uh, who's in charge of 10 cities, by the way, because he was really a good guy. And, um, you know, he, he basically goes to God and says, you know, hey, I'm concerned because I got, you know, there's this one person left in my village. And I think he's going to be deceived. He's only 20 years old. He's just a child compared to everybody else. And I'm afraid he's going to be deceived and it's not really his fault. Okay, so so anyway, um, then Michael goes and has this special device called an aphod which uh ben just needs to he just needs to hold on to it and he can have a a virtual reality experience he can see into the past into the archives and he gets he gets a you know front and center kind of vision of what happened in the tribulation what happened at the second coming of jesus what did the passing away of the veil look like and uh, armageddon and, and so forth And and as he's doing this, he's learning important clues because he has to find a key that will unlock him to be able to get on the king's highway, by which he can then go up to the New Jerusalem, uh, which is you know it's on the planet. And then he needs another key so that he can get in through the gate. And uh, and I'll just you know kind of give a little spoiler here: The, the 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 key is not so much you know some key, but it's. It's really understanding the reality. And all the time because things happen so fast in the archives, you know, he can sort of download this information in in a matter of seconds or minutes. Right. And but then he, he kinda comes back out and he, he's still still listening to the rhetoric that Satan is giving as to why everybody should follow him. And um, and, you know, so that, that's kind of the so story. there's
3: a little, little time travel action going on in the story.
4: Yeah, exactly. It's time travel, uh-huh. and, um, you know, so then we, we eventually see the events that we, you know, we see happen in, in Revelation where Satan is put away for a thousand years. Then we have the city come down. We've got the transformation of the earth and all this kind of stuff. So that's, you know, that's all a part of it, and he's learning through all this stuff. He's like, "Oh wow, the the kingdom of of uh, Arya, who was Jesus, means lion. Um, right. You know, his kingdom is 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 a whole lot better than Satan's kingdom ever was. You know, maybe I don't want to follow this guy because he's kind of a scoundrel, <laughs> and uh, and I don't call him Satan either. I call him Rahil which means the slanderer." Uh. Uh, and, and and I go into a whole bunch of explanation as to how that came about as well. But well, um, awesome.
1: That yeah. just sounds very fascinating, and I can't wait to read it. What uh, is it going to be called? Where can we get it? What's, uh, when is called, it coming out?
4: Uh, my, my working title right now is The Edge of Eternity, and uh-huh. um, I may change that. We'll see. Coming out, uh, Lord willing, it's going to come out by July something or other. And uh, I'm working furiously to try to get that done. It's going to be in two books, by the way. So book one uh, is going to be done by then. Book two, hopefully, by December. Uh, I have DVDs that will go along with it, and that's sort of more of the academic approach, uh, kind of like what I've been sharing here on the show. Right. Uh, and uh, but yeah, and I just hope you know people can read it and they'll they'll get it. And then I'll have a I'll have an insider's guide that will go along with it. They'll have all the verse references and whatever important notes that I want people to, you know, if you want the the full scoop, you can get the insider's guide as well. That will be the, the magic decoder. <laughs> <laughs> well,
3: now, did you have, you know, a lot of, I've listened to fiction writers talk about the process of writing fiction, right? And this, and the characters come alive. And I've, I've heard some, Authors even say like, oh, you know, the character just takes on the life of, of their own and, and, you know, they talk to me and they tell me the story. And then did you have any of that? Like, did you have, you know, uh, Satan, the, the Satan character sort of, you know, tell you, <laughs> I mean, not literally, but I'm saying, you know, w- yeah. what, what was the process like? Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, I know you have a lot of dialogue that, that you know, what would Satan say? And, yeah. uh, you know, I know that's not the easiest thing to I mean, it might be easy to, to put down, but I mean, the process might've, I can imagine would be difficult and challenging because you don't want to, uh, you know, you don't want to start feeling like maybe you are Satan. You know what I mean? I
4: don't know. It's, it's, it was surprisingly easy, um, you know, to write some of that stuff because I, I feel that that same stuff in my heart, you know, I mean, I just feel that same stain of sin, in my heart. So, you know, and, and uh, an underlying thread that I've woven through the book is, you know, why did Satan fall? I mean, what was so bad about hanging out with God? It really comes right. down to he did not want to be a servant. And what is Jesus all about? He came to serve. God is the servant king. Right. Whoever is greatest in the kingdom must be the servant of all. Right? The first shall be last, the last shall be first. The older will serve the younger. You know, we see this principle everywhere, and that is at the heart of who God is. So you say you love God? Oh great. You say you want to serve God? Okay. Well, why don't you go serve those poor people over there? Why don't you go serve those widows and orphans? Well, I don't know about that, Lord. Well, that's what I'm all about. You know, that's what God's kind of saying. And Satan is you know, he was the greatest he, he's the he's the vice chancellor, okay, of the entire universe. He's got all the stuff, all the trappings. You know, you look at him, and you're like, whoa, he looks just like God. He's amazing. And God's like, you know what? It took me half a nanosecond to create all that stuff for him. It took no effort whatsoever. If you really want to be like me, don't look on the outside because I don't look on the outside. You know, again, it took me no effort whatsoever to make all those cool tr- things for you. If you want to be like me, learn to be a servant, and then I will raise you up in due time. Well, Satan didn't like that, and of course the person he had to serve was Adam and, and Eve. Uh, and, you know, each of us has to be a servant to somebody. We all have to learn to serve somebody we probably don't like, but that's what being a servant is really all about. And He essentially rebelled against that. He started to slander God as a result of that. And uh, my character, Ben, he has to really figure that out. He's got to discover, all right, Satan is coming with all these lies. He's slandering God like he's always done. And he's telling me that being a servant isn't such a cool thing. In fact, really, God left him no choice, you know, because... You know, look, I mean, God himself boasts of Leviathan and behemoth. You know, there's a hierarchy in the order of things, right? The lower things are the lower things, and the higher things are the higher things, right? And, right. and, I, and I just happen to be the highest of all the things, you know? Is that my fault? No. Um <laughs> you know, would would it be right? would it be right for me to go and to serve something that was created to serve the sun, moon, and stars to serve the animals? Well, no, of course not. you know, and he's kind of got this word play going on. He's like, "So you know how could I serve Adam and Eve?" And people are like, "Oh, yeah, okay, I get it." and um, And so then what I you know, once he's kind of laid that foundation. And he's tickling people's ears, you know. He goes to the land of Yavon, which is Greece. And he says, you guys, you guys used to be amazing, you know. You were the pride and joy of the ancient world. Everybody wanted to copy you. Your philosophers uh, and and artists and everything were the envy of the ancient world. I can make you like that again, trust me. And uh, You know, so he's playing on their pride. And then he says, you know, you should have to serve God. God, or you should have to serve the the Ivrim, which are the, the, the Jews, the Hebrews. And they're like, yeah, we should have to serve those guys, because they're no better than us. And Satan says, it's even written in the book, written in the archives, that uh, you know they're no better than you, and that uh, many times God wanted to destroy them. So he brings things out of the Bible, which are true, and and then he just kind of twists them a little bit, which is, you know, the beauty of slander. Right. <laughs> he just... Right you know and i'm like oh this is way too easy to do this you know <laughs> <laughs> like i'm learning how to be a really good slanderer right so um so he's just he's taken stuff right out of the archives aka the bible and <laughs> says see you know it says right here and even their greatest king uh the, the son of jesse he was nothing but a scoundrel you know and don't take my word for it it's written in the official archives you know so you shouldn't have to serve those those Hebrews because they're not any better than you. And the people are like, "Yeah, that's right," you know. And so it's it's that kind of stuff where I am like, "Well, I am probably pretty safe because you know what other what else can he say to the nations?" You know, I mean, right. he, uh, he's not like you know we can be you know, you know he's just you know he's just kind of it's the same old same old lies, same old tricks, same old slander, just an, another day. And um, so I, I thought I was on pretty safe ground when I started writing that kind of stuff. <laughs> Let's go all right. right. Yeah, yeah, no, I like yeah. it. I like it yeah. a lot. Yeah. So okay. you know, yeah. So the, the the fictional part is is a little bit in how I put the pieces together. It, you know, I mean, obviously Satan has not said these things yet in the future, but he actually has said these things in the past, right? Right. So yeah, you know, it's it's fiction, but it's not fiction, you know. So. But yeah, I'll just call it fiction because you know what else can I call it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, a it's a story. Fiction. Yeah, it's a story. You know, that's what it is. It's a story, so it's fiction by by virtue of being a story. But but it's it's based on a true story. You know, uh, it's based on real accounts. That's probably the the way to understand it. Sounds great. Right.
1: Well, there you go. Make sure to look for that, and I'm sure Doug will have you back on to um, give us an update on uh, when that comes out and let us know where we can
4: get that yeah awesome that'd be great i'll okay. be on my website douglasham.com
1: okay so there we go all right everybody well thanks for tuning in this week to canary cry radio douglas Hamp, thank you again so much for coming on the show very good friend can't wait to see you again
3: basil you say uh this week like we put on a I show say? every
1: week well it's always <laughs> some week
3: I know it's I'm just I'm, I'm just week. I'm picking on you because you know we we've been uh stop
1: it I'm very sensitive about our uh lack of consistency <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> right? I, did, I, I feel like I'm in. breaking promises
3: uh, well okay go on
1: don't don't
3: continue continue rapping
1: oh gosh okay where was I anyways <laughs> thanks everyone for tuning in this week No matter what week it is.
3: Uh, You can check out the book, The Edge of Eternity, or whatever it may be called. Uh, And you can keep tabs on that at douglashamp.com. You can also check out a new show, brand new show called Quest for Truth. Quest for the number four truth. Uh, with Rob Skiba and Doug and they ramble on about certain things that are pretty cool and you can find that on youtube.com slash quest for truth show and also you can uh, check out Doug's weekly show according to the scriptures and you can find that on the website as
4: well
1: alright so thanks a lot Doug for coming on the show really appreciate it this time my friend
4: hey thank you for having me it's been a pleasure to be here
1: yeah, thanks for tuning in to Canary Cry Radio this week. And until next time, think outside the cage.
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of Canary Cry Radio. The show notes for this episode and many others are available at canarycryradio.com. Make sure to connect and like our Facebook page at facebook.com canarycryradio. Follow us on Twitter at canarycryradio. If you would like to share the show in video format, you can find us on YouTube by searching Canary Cry Radio. Review us on iTunes with five stars and give us a thumbs up on stumbleupon.com. We would like to thank those of you who have given us your support, prayers, and donations. If you would like to join us and support Canary Cry Radio financially, you could do so by visiting canarycryradio.com and clicking the support tab. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, remember to think outside the cage.
1: Boom. The Dang. magic of radio. <laughs>
3: okay. We, we could we never go live. It'll be just such a disaster if we go live. You guys live. would be in big trouble, man. <laughs> <laughs>